0: that we claim is beautiful you're all those things all the time you're the one dear God who's teaching us how to love you've done that through your son Jesus you do that through your Holy Spirit you do it by working in our life and in our world and by causing things to fall out just like you want them to fall out And we look back and we proclaim with Paul, all things have worked together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, you would think with us being the recipient of that love that we'd get it. And that we would harness our broken spirits and that we would make captive those things that would detract from our relationship with you. But so often that's not how it is. With all the love and with your presence in our life, we still oftentimes willingly or unwillingly turn from you. And I ask, Lord, that you hear every one of us this morning as we call out and say, Lord, please forgive me. I do the very things I hate. And I don't like to see myself do them. And I don't ever want to do them again. Please help me, Lord. Father, that's our unified cry this morning. Because sin still exist in us. And try as we might, It seems to abide with us, and yet you, dear God, dwell in us, and we belong to you. And ultimately, we know where we're going to end up. We're going to end up in one of those rooms that you've set aside in your mansion in heaven, and we're going to be there with you forever and ever. But between this moment and then, help us, Lord. Help us to be humbled and help us to seek after you. Father, you have churches in every community all around our country. You have a witness and a presence all throughout our country, both historically and presently. There are books written about you. There are movies made about you. There are people talking about you. People sharing with others about you. And with all of that, Lord, our country's in a mess. I pray, dear Father, that you'd help us with revival in our land. And the benefit that we'll know from that is that people will come to know you and that they'll become part of your family and be destined for their room in heaven also. And then it might also mean, dear God, that the direction of our country might change. That we as a nation might be surrendered to you. We pray for those who are in positions of authority, not just in government, but certainly in government. In the business world, in the education world, and in every other sphere of influence in this country. And pray that your Holy Spirit would visit and bring under conviction. That you, dear God, would regenerate those who've not been regenerated yet and that you would call them to yourself. Father, every one of us can think of some folks in our own walk, in our own life that seemingly don't know you or haven't surrendered to you. People who are trying to figure it out on their own and do it the way they want to do it. We pray for them this morning. Pray that you would bless them. That they might see your open arms and know that you would like to be their father and care for them. Father, we have people in military uniforms and we have people in medical uniforms, police uniforms. And so many of them are in harm's way. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be quickened in them. And that they might hear and know about you. And that that faith might be renewed over and over again. And we pray, dear God, for our church, that our church would reach out Not just in our immediate neighborhoods, but throughout our community and even a broader ministry in our state and country and world. And that people might know that we're different because we love. Because we've been loved. Help us to notice the people around us. Help us to care about other people. Help us to long to be used by you to enrich somebody else's life. Father, thank you for our time with you this morning. Thank you for the prayers and thank you for the music. And please help us as we complete our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians the first chapter we're going to resume our study with the eighth verse and we're going to study through the eleventh jane jane your husband is sitting up front if you'd like to join him i don't want the church ever Hold your hand up, Hank. I don't want the church to ever divide a couple. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) That's enough of that. It's good to see you together. You're not in your assigned seats, but it's good to see you. (laughs) We're going to be studying Philippians starting in the first chapter with the eighth verse. Isn't it good to be able to smile and laugh a little? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here and to study your word. And I pray that you would now open it up for us and let your Holy Spirit apply it to us and help us to hear and help us to believe and help us to take it to heart and help us to incorporate it into our lives. Thank you, Father, for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 1952, A young man had a desire that God had put on his heart to be a missionary. He went through some training. Then he got on a ship and sailed south down the Pacific coast of South America to the country of Ecuador. He had heard about an Indian tribe, the Aucas. Didn't know much about them because nobody did. These were people who lived in the jungle, in the mountains, who had almost no human contact. But God had put a burden on his heart. God had put a burden on the hearts of four other men. And they also joined with Jim Elliot and met in Ecuador went inland into the mountains, into the forest. They went to a place that had been a business and had been closed because the threat of danger and death was so high that nobody wanted to work there. They took that old building and converted it into a mission station. 1953, February, Jim met a young lady. Elizabeth Hudson. She had a burden on her heart to be a missionary. She went to Ecuador. Isn't that lucky? God's grace is so wonderful. She started working with a different Indian tribe. She and Jim met. Just before Christmas of '53, they got married. And the next year they conceived a child. When the baby was about 10 months old, Jim and the other four missionaries decided to make contact with these people that nobody knew. Time magazine had run an article about them. They said they were the worst people on earth. And they went on to describe what they knew about these people and said, they thrive on hurting and killing. And there's no love in their hearts. It described them as Stone Age in their behavior. Two examples to help you understand how the darkness enveloped this tribe of Indians. A lady in that tribe quite unexpectedly birthed twins. Apparently, that was an unheard of thing in their society. So she dug a hole and buried both of them alive. And that was accepted behavior. If you became infirmed and it didn't appear you were going to get well, Or if you were a senior citizen and you didn't have any worth in their eyes, while you were still awake, laying in your hammock, they would come and dig a hole under the hammock. And you might watch them dig the hole. Then they'd turn the hammock upside down and you'd fall in the hole and they would bury you alive. Jim and these other four missionary men felt compelled by God to make contact and to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. They used an interesting tactic. They got a small plane and they flew back and forth over one of their tribal sites and they dropped gifts to them for about a week trying to communicate that they were not enemies but that they loved them and cared about them. And then they flew that plane in to a sandy bar in the midst of a river adjacent to one of those tribal sites. They set up a makeshift kind of station. Jim called his wife and said, we're going to go in to the jungle and make contact. He went into the jungle with the other four missionaries. They found the Indians. They made contact with them. When they came back out, they thought things had gone pretty well since nobody else had ever done that. The next day, 30 or 40 it's estimated of the tribe males showed up at the river. One of the missionaries before they had left had thought about carrying a weapon with him and had decided to distrust the Lord with that and left the gun at home. One gun in that environment would have made a world of difference. The Indians came with spears and brutally killed all five missionaries, left their bodies strewed along that river, When a phone call didn't come back from the mission team, people went out looking for them and found the five dead missionaries and retrieved their bodies. Jim's wife had a little 10-month-old baby in her arms when she heard her husband was dead. She felt compelled to go to those Indians, the very ones who had killed her husband. Another one of the missionaries had a sister who equally felt compelled. The two women and this little baby were transported back out to that river, and they made contact with that tribe. And for the next two years, they ministered to those people. And for the first time, as far as anybody knows, in the life of that tribe, people began to love. They were so struck by what Jim's wife and this other missionary lady were doing. And so touched by the fact they would even bring a baby with them and so touched by the fact that they had killed their family members and were now being loved. Love is an interesting thing. It has far more power and influence than most of us stop to realize. Interesting thing about love, when God loves us and we accept Jesus as our Savior, That potential to love other people is present. But you know what happens if you have a muscle like a heart muscle and you don't use it? It loses its vitality and it gets hard and it restricts the flow of blood. And before you know it, it's influencing your whole being. And what God wants his church to do is to love like Elizabeth Elliot loved. Is that a challenge already? Let's read our passage together and you'll see why I say the things I say. Philippians, the first chapter, starting with the eighth verse and reading through the 11th. Listen very carefully and clearly, for God is about to speak. For God is my witness how I long for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look at the eighth verse, he starts the Apostle Paul by saying to the Philippians, for God is my conscience. And what he's saying is, I'm making an oath before you. I'm telling you something you already know, and that is that God knows everything I think and everything I feel, so what I'm about to say to you, he's actually giving witness to it because he knows. Now, you know, aren't there some times that you don't want God to know what you're thinking? Aren't there some times you say, Lord, I'd like you to come soon, but not right this second. I'd like you to wait a little while until I get things straight. And Paul is saying, no, God knows me all the time. He knows what I think and what I feel, and he knows what I'm about to say to you is true. He says, for God is my witness. What he's really saying is, as I believe it and as I live it, God is observing me. And he's doing the same thing with you and the same thing with me. So what we know intellectually ought to find expression in the way we live our lives. And if we have been loved by God, we ought to love other people because that's the natural outgrowth. There was a song that came out in the 1960s. None of us are old enough to remember it. but What the world needs now is love, sweet love. You know, that's become a hit in about four different occasions, four different decades. A beautiful song that says what we need is love. And it's true, what we need is love. We need to long to have relationships with other people. Haven't you heard folks say, I have a member of my family or I have someone in my circle of friends that we no longer see each other? For one reason or another, we're estranged from each other. And you know what God longs to hear us say? I long to be reconciled. I long to love that person and to do everything I can to fix that relationship. Paul's coming with that kind of sincerity. He says, for God is my witness how I long for you. But he's not just longing in the flesh. He's not feeling guilt and just responding to guilt. He's not looking at life and saying, well, if I'm good to you and love you, I'm going to get something out of this. It's not based on that kind of love. And the way Paul says that is he uses the phrase affection of Christ Jesus. He wants us to love like Jesus loved. Do you know how Jesus loved? He loved us knowing beforehand what the cost would be. And he said, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to die for you that you might live. And that's going to be the expression of my love. That kind of affection for us. And that's precisely what has happened. And as you and I start to understand that and assimilate that into our whole being, there's that potential we'll love other people like Christ has loved us. If you look at verse 9, and this is almost a series of questions that Paul raises. He says, do you pray for other people? he says to the people in the church at Philippi, I'm praying for you. And you sense he means I'm praying for you on a regular basis. What is it that it says he's praying? He says, I'm praying that your love, this selfless love, that your love may abound still more and more. So apparently Paul has seen in them love. He's experienced it firsthand when he was with them. He's heard about it. And now what he's saying is, I'm praying that that love will just grow and grow and grow. I tried to think of an example. And I've been watching the news like you have, and you know they're having terrible floods in Colorado, and and we need to be concerned about the people out there. And if you watch those accounts, you'll see that bushes and trees are being moved by the water. We've all, I think, seen pictures of cars, even with people in them tumbling down because of the water and people being rescued. Picture of a house being moved by the force of the water. I think Paul is saying to us, I want you to love like that. I want you to love so much without restriction without trying to hold back, I want you to love other people so much that it has that kind of momentum to it where it can move any kind of obstacle. You think of a reason why you can't love somebody, love can move that obstacle. You think of some history you have, love can wash that away. Paul is praying that they and we might love more and more. And he says... The reason I want that to happen is I want you to understand both the knowledge and discernment that's necessary. And what he's saying is I want you now, from a knowledge standpoint, I want you to look at other people and at life like God looks at them. I want you to have that kind of knowledge that you can see what God is seeing. And when you stop fussing with somebody or you stop having hard feelings or or conjuring up memories about somebody and you replace it by saying, Lord, help me to see this situation as you see it. The potential to love happens. And he says, discernment. You know what discernment is? It's something a lot of us lack a lot of times. We go into situations, do something, and come out of the situation, and we never figured out what the situation was all about. Discernment is, through God's eyes, understanding the person. Discerning what God's trying to do in that situation and how he would use us. And some of the very people that we are so animately estranged from are the very people that God's put in our life for us to love. And one of the fringe benefits, that they might also love us. Let me tell you, if you're in the habit of making excuses for being a little hard-hearted, be careful. That's not what God wants. He wants his kids to love like he's loved us. Amen? You understand? God's just really serious about this. If you look on down at the 10th verse, there's another question that it begs. It begs the question, do you approve of the things that are excellent? Isn't that interesting? What he's saying is, can you tell the difference between right and wrong? Can you tell the difference between that which is good and that which is not good? Or you just embrace everything that comes your way? He's saying, I want you to approve. I want you to say, yes, this is excellent. And he's saying, the things that pertain to me, the things I'm doing in this world and the things I want you to do in this world, those are the excellent things. Those are the things that make a difference. That's how you make a difference. It's how you experience the power of God in your life by making that distinction. And then he uses an interesting word. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere. The people who lived in New Testament times may have understood that word sincere differently than we do. We get it. It means honest truthful you know what they heard the greek word has this built into it so much of what was in their homes and in their world was pottery it was pottery that was harvested from the clay and the earth it was formed and baked taken to shops and sold if while it was in the oven cooking a crack appeared, the entrepreneur would take it out, would take some material and fill the crack, put it back in the oven, take it back out and coat it with something to make it pretty and acceptable, and finish baking it, and then sell it. And you could go into a shop and you could see a piece of pottery, whatever its function, and you could look at it and it might be the most beautiful thing you ever laid eyes on. But if you took it outside in the sun and you held it up, the crack would be visible and the filler. A person who's sincere doesn't try to cover up the crack. In the Greek mind, a person who is sincere doesn't have a crack. If they do, they do something about it in the form of repentance. And they get their life straight. They don't just dress up and try to look pretty. Because in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that crack will eventually show up if you don't deal with it. Isn't that interesting? See, the Greeks were much, much more vivid in their language than we are in lots of ways. I want to give credit to that example. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, an acquaintance of mine who's with the Lord today. Jim was a pastor for many years at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, one of our churches. I never could figure out where Jim got that example from. But he was a scholar, and I'm not, so you got to hear it. It was a good example. It's interesting, he says also we need to be without blame. This is what he's praying for us. And to be without blame means to get focused on Jesus and to be sincere about that and live it day by day, and when you find yourself varying by the grace of God, get back on track. Tell him you're sorry, ask for his forgiveness, and get with the program. You know how to do that. You've done that. He's saying, I want you to do that repetitively. I want you to let that be a way of life with you. And if you'll do that, you'll walk with me. And you'll talk with me. And one of the outgrowths is you will learn to love in a way you've not loved before. Paul, and he did it in the first part of this chapter, and here he does it again. He says, and I want you to do this with something in mind. I want you to do it with the fact that Jesus is coming again, and I want you to live for that goal. And the way he says that is to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. You see how Paul keeps looking to the future? And the only thing in the future is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he gathers his church together triumphantly and we spend eternity with him. And Paul is saying, hey folks, don't live for just now. It's not just about tomorrow or the next day. It's about that wonderful day when Jesus is coming again. Keep that in focus and love other people without reservation. Look at the last verse. In 11, he says, having been, past tense, it's already occurred, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. I said this in our inquirer's class Sunday school this morning, and incidentally, if any of you want to attend that and haven't, you're welcome to come be a part. That was a paid political... No, you're welcome to come next week. But in class this morning, I made the comment, and this is something I trust we know, we're not righteous. No, not one. I read that someplace. What we are is people saved by grace. And when we accept Jesus, his righteousness is added to our account, and suddenly God looks on us, not as the sinners that we are, but as people covered in righteousness. And we can now have a place in the presence of a righteous God. God did it because he loves us. Well, Paul now says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, when you have that kind of walking, talking relationship with Jesus, it finds fruit, it it manifests itself in your daily life. And the things that are not pleasing to God become unpleasing to us. And we want to make a change. He says, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, folks, there's nothing that I can do and nothing that you can do to earn our salvation. And when you go back and read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and I encourage you to do that, you're reminded quite bluntly that we are saved by grace through faith and it's nothing that we did so we shouldn't boast about it. He makes that real clear. You know what he says in the 10th verse? Having been saved, God has already prepared beforehand the things he wants us to do. So he gives us talents, he gives us spiritual gifts, and he says, come, you're my children, I want you to be a part of this. I want you to be part of my ministry. And when you and I do that, It brings praise to him, not to save us, but just for us to say, thank you, Lord. That's our way of saying thanks. So what he wants us to do is to be lovers with the kind of love that Jesus has for us. I want you to know as I sit and work on sermons, I come under conviction almost every week. I want to love like Jesus loved. Don't you? I'm going to invite you to bow your head. If you want to come up here, you're welcome to do that. And if there's something you need to get straight in the arena of love in your personal life, let this be the start. In your prayer to the Lord, commit yourself to loving even those that you haven't loved in the past and being available to God to love anew and after we've had a few minutes in prayer silently I'll close our service again if you'd like to come up here please feel free to let's pray together Father, I want to ask you to forgive myself and others. You have loved us, and somehow we have found a hardness of heart that we don't always love others. And as you forgive us, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a longing, as Paul has asked to love in places and with people we've not loved before. And knowing, dear God, as we do that, it'll make you happy. We don't get it right all the time, Lord. But you give us new opportunities every time we stop and think about it. Your word brings us to that conviction So if there's some folks that we need to talk to after church today, help us to reach out to them. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you would continue to grow us up in the likeness of your son, Jesus. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Oh, excuse me. Stand up. (laughs) that okay this morning anybody exempt i don't think so if you got some business to take care of when you leave church today take care of it for your sake and for the sake of others god bless you my friends and god keep you may you feel his love And may you express it to others today and tomorrow and all the days of your life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.